The hills are alive with the sound of CMO combos, but they aren't the chats they've been having for a thousand years. We're tackling the issues marketing leaders need to know about right now. You won't find any lonely goat herds in this episode, but you will find Austin Beveridge, head of marketing for Arc Technologies. He's with us to share the lessons he learned growing Bolt into a Decacorn, that's a $12 billion valuation, how he's applying those lessons at Arc, and how you too can do the same. Whether it's creating the right culture, hiring the right talent you need, or identifying the tools that will help you reach your goals. We cover all this and more in this episode. Stay tuned. We promise there won't be any more references to classic musicals. Hi, Austin. Welcome to CMO Convo. How are you doing today? Good, Will. How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you for asking. Thank you for asking. And I'm very much looking forward to this conversation today because we're going to be exploring some, some very interesting ideas that you have to share about how to grow companies because you, you have a lot of experience with growing companies. Um, would you like to go into a bit about your your background and why we're speaking about the sure. subject today? Yeah. So um grew up in Wisconsin, uh, had always been involved in startups, went through a few different accelerators um, with a few different startups, joined a corporation, learned a lot about process, organization, and, and working cross-functionally, then moved out to Silicon Valley where I joined Bolt. Um, was the second marketing hire. So Robert joined a few weeks before I did. And then I joined, um, we joined when there was just over a hundred people. And when we left earlier this year, we had just under a thousand startup had gone from, um, a few hundred million in valuation to over 12 billion. And so it was a wild ride. We learned a ton and excited to dive in and share some of those lessons today. Fantastic. And so by that 12 billion valuation, that makes it, what is is it? Decacorn, or is that is that the term we're using? Yeah, yeah. So we scaled it from a startup to a unicorn, and then a decacorn. Um, and we're hoping to do the same thing here at Arc. We raised our seed earlier this year. Um, we raised our Series A in August, um, and we're well on our way to being the next fintech unicorn. So. Fantastic, fantastic. So very interested to have this conversation with you today. Um, I believe we're going to be going through um, some of the chief lessons you've learned. So it probably works to to start at the top. So what, what was the biggest yeah. lesson you learned from your time in, at Bolt that you're applying to Arc? Yeah, I think the biggest thing that I had um, was when, you, when you're in startups, the, the idea is you move fast and you break things. And I think moving fast and breaking things is really good when you're starting to get off the ground because you just have to execute. But at some point, you realize that you have to get the foundation right, which is the baseline of all of the different things that all of your systems run on top of. So for example, it would be your CRM, making sure you have a CRM that's set up properly, making sure you have a website that scales, meaning you have the correct technical stack so that you don't have to continuously engage with a development agency or multiple development agencies to make sure that gets across the track. And so I think the biggest thing that I've learned um, by none is sometimes moving fast and breaking things is the right approach. And sometimes you have to take a step back, think through what your next 10 steps are going to be, build the right foundation. And then from there, you can actually construct your house to scale. I suppose, yeah, moving fast and breaking things, it sounds good. It sounds fun to do, but it's it's not really a plan you can share with your CEO, really. Like they'll want to see like, a proper systematic strategy in place. So yeah, you kind of need an alternative route, I suppose. Yeah. Although I will say that we were encouraged to take risks. And so one of the things we were encouraged to be 20% wrong, which I think makes an environment of psychological safety where people are willing to put themselves out there. I think a really good example of that um, for some of your listeners might be when we launched the um, Bolt Coalition, we essentially had um, brought together a bunch of different artists and then thought, Hey, you know, we serve e-commerce retailers. We offer this one-click checkout. Maybe we can offer uh, and demonstrate the one-click checkout to our partners, to our prospects, to uh, consumers, and let them interact with the checkout in a native experience owned by Bolt. And so we built this entire store. We partnered with up-and-coming artists across the country. Um, and then to kick off the launch of that store, we actually um, decided we were going to have a penny hoodie sale. And so we launched on uh, the 6th of July, the 4th of July. The idea came across, hey, let's launch this hoodie sale. We're going to give away a million dollars worth of hoodies. We're just going to try to create as much buzz as we can. And so we started the first hour. I think we had a thousand orders. The second order, second hour, we had 1500 orders. The third hour we had, I don't know, like 2,500 orders. Then in the span of 30 minutes, we had 5,000 orders. Then in the span of five minutes, we had 15,000 orders. We took more orders in five minutes. I think at the height, it was 150 orders per second. Um, And what that caused was the entire Bolt checkout network to go down. And wow. so we didn't engage engineering. We didn't tell them we were going to do it. We just said, hey, we're going to launch the store. We're going to build it. We're not sure how fast it's going to scale. We launch it. It brings down the entire checkout network. 
Uh, and needless to say, that was a lot of fun conversations with the engineering team, but we learned that you have to get engineering involved up front. I think a lot of the time you think, hey, we're not sure if this is going to scale. And it did. And because they weren't involved, we took out the entire network. And luckily it wasn't during holiday season. So, you know, they had it up and running in, I think, 30 minutes. So it wasn't a big deal, but it was just one of those lessons where, man, we didn't think it was going to scale and just exploded. So, Well, be- better to break things through massive success than a failure, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Although I will say, uh, on the same note of kind of failing, I, uh, my credit card, um, you know how you get credit card statements and they tie the merchant number back to whatever it is. Well, when I signed up for the merchant of record, I put my phone number on it. So all 28,000 <laughs> of those people got my, my phone number on their credit card statement. So needless to say, I played marketing role, but then also customer experience role, but then also order fulfillment role. Hey, where's my orders? And so that was, uh, a fun experience and I enjoyed that. So I'll, I'll bet as well. I'll bet. Um, I suppose like having that kind of success as well, even if it does lead to breaking your entire website, um, it kind of sets you up nicely to be able to try uh, to be able to experiment further. Like once you've got that kind of like win under your belt, you're, you've got examples of like, Hey, we we've, we've had successes by experimenting here. Let's try some other stuff as well. Yeah. Yeah. Another really good example of that was um, during the height of the pandemic, we, we're chatting with some of our retailers and we were trying to figure out what are they doing in response, right? What are, how are they responding to the pandemic? How are they approaching their logistics supply chain? This is just when everything was talking about slowing down. And so a lot of them started to shift their production lines from selling their products to actually helping frontline workers. And so a couple of examples of that were um, the paint gear and gear, they sold uh, paintball masks. And so you would think, hey, paintball masks, how does that have any um, tie to frontline workers? Well, they took their entire lines of making paintball masks, which have essentially a face shield and, and coverage, and actually made masks for frontline workers. Um, so that was really interesting. And so it was cool to see what all these different retailers were doing and how they were trying to help the frontline workers, even though they didn't necessarily have a one-to-one tie with, with um, their product lines at the time. Awesome. Awesome. It sounds to me like a culture of experimentation is very important then. Like what kind of steps are you taking at Arc to try and create this culture? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I think the biggest thing um, when it comes to experiments is you have to have a goal in mind. So whether it's you're trying to drive top line revenue, whether you're trying to see if you can achieve cheaper costs per clicks or cheaper costs per impressions, um, I think that the core thing is create a framework for setting up these experiments and then tie it to some top line goal. So for example, today we're trying to drive a certain volume of AUM, which is essentially assets under management. So how much deposit volume we have in our treasury account. Um, And so we're running a bunch of different experiments across paid campaigns, across email campaigns, across um, email and lifecycle campaigns, across some of our outbound notions, and we're just trying to figure out what works, right? When you're when you're entering into a new market, you have to figure out what does the audience care about? What are those three or four things that they really tie to? And until you experiment and have a framework of, hey, we tried this, it didn't work, here's maybe why. We tried this, didn't work, here's maybe why. And, and you can start to tick off those boxes, eliminating one variable at a time. It's really hard to understand um, what's working. One of the things that's working really well for us today uh, is LinkedIn in-mail and conversational ads. So essentially, you upload a list of all the target customers that you want to hit. Then you create conversational ads that hit their inbox. And then from the inbox, you can see how many people engage with those ads and how many actually turn into leads. Unlike a Google where you're kind of taking a shotgun approach to hitting everybody that's searching for specific keywords, you can be very targeted. And I only want to talk to these companies. I only want to talk to these titles. And then based on the response rate, you start to think, okay, well, this value prop didn't really resonate. This value prop did. So let's continue to double down on that and continue to change individual variables. Um, and so it's it's just, what's the top line goal? What are the couple of variables I want to test? And then what are the channel mix that I can use to actually test those different variables out in the market? Awesome. Awesome. So I'm going to say lesson number one is the culture of experimentation. What is, what is lesson number two that you're taking from, from Bolt that you're applying in art? Yeah, I think the the next biggest thing is the necessity of sales and marketing alignment. I think a lot of the time when you're scaling a startup, marketing has very different goals than sales. And what I mean by that is marketing typically at most organizations is gauged on how many MQLs or how many leads that come in that are qualified from a marketing perspective hit the funnel. And then their job is to essentially drive this many top of the funnel leads 
into the funnel, nurture them to hit sales. Well, the problem is sales is not gauged on how many MQLs they drive. It's how many opportunities close. So marketing doesn't necessarily care if the MQLs that they drive turn into opportunities at the end. And so how do you actually take those two different paradigms of, of success metrics and how do you bring those two together? And so I think the biggest thing um, is setting it from the top level. So organizations should have OKRs. OKRs are essentially a framework for understanding what everybody is trying to uh, accomplish together. Um, and then inside of those OKRs, instead of tying like generate 1500 MQLs as the headline uh, key result, instead tie it to some amount of revenue. So maybe it's 100 million in first time advances. Maybe it's 50 million in deposit volume. Maybe it's, if you're selling SaaS, maybe it's 50,000 new subscriptions. Drive it directly to revenue or opportunities. And then you start to align your marketing activities to hit opportunities. So instead of prioritizing for quantity, which is you just try to drive as many people into the funnel as possible, and hopefully some percentage of them turn into MQLs, and then some percentage of them come down, you spend all of your time figuring out how can I fix the funnel so I get as many qualified leads as possible, which then ultimately drive into opportunities. And what that does is it aligns your sales notion with your marketing notion. And those two teams now kind of divvy up into a revenue org versus like marketing operating in its own silo, sales operating in its own silo, which I think we've done a really good job here at ARC of doing. It's everybody on the revenue team is working together towards hitting these revenue goals. How we achieve them is a little different. Sales is doing outbound notions. Sales is doing calls. Sales is doing the variety of other activities that drive actual opportunities. Marketing is doing the same thing, but marketing is now tied to driving the revenue. So we're incentivized to make sure that we hit the proper amount of opportunities into the funnel. And so when you align those two, you just have very different conversations and sales isn't complaining about the quality of leads. Marketing isn't complaining about sales, not closing leads. And so it just, it creates a much more conducive environment to getting things done. And I suppose having that kind of alignment set up at quite an early stage, it, it bakes that into the DNA of the organization. It means that marketing and sales are naturally going to be marching to the beat of the same drum, no matter how you scale, I suppose. Yeah, that's right. And it makes it so that everybody's aligned together. And so I think one of the biggest things that I learned at Bolt was you have to talk to the customer because if you're removed from the customer, you don't even really understand what they care about. And so you can test a hundred different metrics and you can try all these different things, but ultimately if you're not speaking to the customer in the way that they want to be spoken to, they're just not going to buy. And so at Arc, now I take sales calls. It's kind of interesting, right? <laughs> so marketing taking sales calls. And so I'll hop on a few times a week um, and just try to understand what these people care about. What are the things that they're, what are the struggles they're facing? How are they talking about the problems that, that they have and how does Arc fit into that solution? And so I take the leads all the way from top of the funnel where they hit an ad or they come in from an email or they come in from whatever, they hit the lead gen form. Then they book time directly on my calendar. Um, and so by eliminating that time gap between you raised your hand to now getting the feedback, we've started to build this flyback wheel of now I know exactly what these people care about. And so we can start to make adjustments on the fly. And so that's been um, very productive. We've seen drastic decreases in the cost per lead. We've seen the drastic decreases in the cost per impression. We've seen the drastic decrease in cost per opportunity. Um, and ultimately that's resulted in, in a lot of top line revenue growth for ARC. And I think, you know, when marketing and sales are aligned, that's where you have that golden ha of everybody coming together. Um, and so it's been really fun to, to be a part of that. Awesome. Awesome. Um, let's talk a bit about the practicalities of that. Like, obviously it's not just about throwing a load of marketers and salespeople in a room together and saying like, you guys need to start working together. Like what goes into sort of like team structure into sort of like the tech stack as well, like to be able to allow this kind of alignment to happen. Yeah. So I think, um, bar none, you have to have a really robust CRM. So I think in startups, there's this need to do the minimum viable product, which is like, you try to get the minimum um, product out the door. But the problem is if you don't have a CRM that's robust and you're not taking notes and you're not logging calls and you're not um, starting with, again, that foundational framework to set you up for success, I think you're kind of building to fail. Uh, another piece of the tech stack that's super important is call recording software. Um, so there's AirCall, there's GoTo, but my favorite is Gong. And so with Gong, you record the calls, you, you can hear exactly what different people are talking about. But my favorite part is actually the filtering. You can go in and be very targeted with 
um, your keywords and find specific conversations where they came up. So what we'll do is we'll prime sales with, hey, here are some new narratives we want to test. And then they'll go out and have the sales calls. And then I'll go into Gong and I'll actually take those sales calls and those keywords, put them in, filter to those exact conversations. And then that way I'm being highly productive with my time instead of listening to 20 minute conversations or having me be actually a part of the conversation on Zoom. I just filter through it exactly where it is, click the timestamp and go. Uh, my colleague, Robert, which I was talking about earlier, he actually listens to gong calls on his way to work. He lives down in <laughs> San Jose. So he actually takes an hour and a half commute both ways. And so he listens to the gong calls all the time. Um, and so that's that's another uh, interesting way to get the behind the scenes look at those, those sales calls. And then in terms of how do you stack the team, right? I think from a marketing perspective, as you scale the organization, you start to get more verticalized. So you have individual channel experts owning email and lifecycle, one person owning paid media, one person owning comms, one person owning um, social, et cetera. On the sales team, it's similar. Um, you have BDRs, which are people that take the, the top of the funnel inbound and start to qualify those leads before they get handed off to the AEs. The AEs are really your people who are um, taking that next step of qualifying, but then closing. And then what we've done is we've brought in some customer success managers or onboarding specialists, as we like to call them. Um, and those individuals are responsible for helping people guide them through the onboarding process. So making sure that they have the correct documentation, making sure that they're not getting caught up on onboarding steps, making sure that they're having a quality experience. And, and after they've now taken their first advance or their positive, their first check into ARC Treasury, that they continuously have somebody that they can talk to, that they can provide feedback. And so I think by having that feedback loop of, of people at the top of the funnel, the BDRs that take the initial sales calls, then you have the AEs, which run full cycle and close the deals. Then you have the onboarding specialist who helps them pre-onboarding and post-onboarding. Um, I think that's really conducive to making sure that they have the best experience possible, which at the end of the day, I think, you know, for us, giving them that white glove service and making sure that they have the best experience possible is really how we try to differentiate ourselves in the marketplace today. And I, I suppose as well, I, having the alignment means that marketing can be useful i'm trying to think of a better word uh, yeah useful is probably the best term i can think of useful to sales all the way through the process as well you've got this breakdown of these different sections stuff so marketing can be working on like lead nurturing content they can be providing uh, sales enablement materials and stuff like that um all while it's still going on yeah and i think that the biggest thing is you run into these conversations where it's if if you have the misalignment of values where marketing drives mqls sales drives sqls and opportunities then you start to have that friction of like, well, these aren't the quality leads. Well, you guys can't close the leads. And so that's where it creates that friction. Whereas when everybody's aligned towards driving revenue, then everybody's values and everybody's activities and everything drives towards that. It's the same thing on quality versus quantity of leads, similar to activity. Marketing can do a lot of activity, but if it ultimately doesn't drive revenue, then we're having a very different conversation. And so to your point, I think when you can align marketing and sales and marketing can support sales all the way through the funnel from start to finish. So as soon as they come inbound, taking those calls, understanding what they care about all the way through to the end where now they've closed, how can marketing help nurture them? How can marketing take those leads and now turn them into reviews, which ultimately drive more repeat on the feedback funnel. It's just, and when everybody works together, it's just a machine that hums. And so that's what we're trying to create. The difference is it took, I would say three years at Bolt to get that right. And now we've done that in the process of six months. And so we've essentially took all of those learnings and compressed it down to a period of, of six months to make sure that we have that flywheel going. In full so you, you've hit the ground running, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so what, what kind of timescales are we talking with the, the OKRs that you're working with? I, I know it can vary from company to company. Yeah. So this might not be relevant advice to everyone that's listening, but just out of interest, like what kind of timescales are you working with? Yeah, so I think that there's two frameworks to your point of of how you set up OKRs. So you have your top level um, quarter or annual OKRs, which are like very high level. We want to position ourselves as top three in this marketplace, or we want to position ourselves in the consideration set for this specific product set. Um, then you have the quarterly objectives. We spend tend to spend more of our time on the quarterly objectives just because we're a smaller organization, we're more nimble, more lean. So we we can actually get down into the weeds. At Bolt, it was much more, here's the annual objectives we have. Um, and then here are the quarterly objectives we have to hit those annual objectives. And then here are the key results that hit it. We're more so focused on here are the quarterly objectives we have to hit. 
here are the quarterly key results we have to hit those quarterly objectives um, because we're more nimble, right? In, in the marketplace, we can move really quick. We can launch new products. We can um, hit new target segments. We can launch into new markets. We can do a variety of different things. And so when we tie our key results on a quarterly basis, we're much more nimble than we than we were in an annual cycle. The other thing is we, we plan for an annual budget but we actually then deploy the capital on a quarterly basis. And so you can start to make changes, right? So you have a top line, here's what your budget is for marketing um, for the annual cycle. And then you'd break it down into, okay, here's what it is for the quarter. And then it's like, okay, well, if something didn't work, well, then I can sort of shift budget. Whereas if you've set them at an annual level and now they're set, there's no real wiggle room. And so we try to be as nimble as we can. And so that's why we go for the quarterly uh, sub-segment of OKRs. Awesome. And so along being nimble as well, you've got to make sure everyone's on the same page. So how, how do you communicate the the OKRs? Is it like an all hands meeting once a quarter or is it just like an email that goes out to staff? Like how's the best way of getting people on? on the yeah. Right yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, at Bolt, we used to do uh, once a quarter OKR readout. So essentially everybody would contribute across the revenue organization. So sales, marketing, customer success, product, et cetera. Everybody would contribute their OKRs. And then each individual team or vertical would have the readout for their team. So marketing would have its own OKRs, product would have its own OKRs, sales would have its own OKRs. Because we're nimble, we're around 30 people, we just broke 30, um, we're able to do a company-wide readout. So everybody knows exactly what everybody's working on. And so company knows what it OKRs are, each individual product line knows what its verticals are, um, and then each individual function has its key results to drive up to it. And so we have a quarterly readout um, here at ARC. And then we have biweekly progress updates to make sure that everybody's tracking back against those key results. So maybe it's, hey, we want to hit this much deposit volume. We want to drive this much um, advanced volume. We want to release these product features. And so everybody gives a product update or process update, progress update on uh, hitting those OKRs. And then for tools, um, we're using uh, Asana today. We've heard ClickUp works really well too. Um, and so that's kind of how we're tracking them today. At some point we'll move over to a more robust OKR tracking tool, but we're just not there yet. So, okay, cool, cool. So number two, sales and marketing alignment. What is lesson number three for building a Decacorn? Yeah, I think the next one is, um, ripping and replacing solutions when they don't stop the bleeding. So I think a lot of the times you hear people putting band-aids on problems because you have to move fast, right? So you have a bunch of different fires you're trying to put out. And so you try to slap band-aids on them. But the problem with slapping band-aids on certain problems is they just don't stop the bleeding. So a really good case in point is we had built a website and we had to make changes really fast. And so we're constantly on the fly trying to figure out you know, how are we going to push these changes? How are we going to scale? How are we going to do all of these different things? And so the only thing and the only solution we can come up with is, hey, let's hire a variety of different developers so that everybody can work inside the same code base. Um, and so the problem was, is then you have patchwork solutions. So you have some people working in one code base, some working in a different code base, and none of those code bases talk to each other. And so we ended up having a lot of different code bases and none of them talk to one another. And so it wasn't scalable. The other problem is, then you'd have people pushing code and when they'd push code, it breaks somebody else's thing, right? So eventually we just had to take that entire stack and rebuild the whole thing from the ground up. Whereas if we would have taken a step back and said, okay, where do we want the website to head in the next six months? Now, what's the framework that's going to set us up for success and who's the right partner to do that? Which is the approach we took at ARC. We said, hey, we have this website we built it over the past few months. We have a few pages. We have a few product pages. We have a few pages that exist in the ether. Rather than having this legacy code base plus a new code base, why don't we take that whole thing and rip it and replace it with something new, take the tech stack from the ground up, and then build it so that it's componentized and scalable. And so now every single page on arc.tech on the website is componentized. So you can take any component at any time and build any page in a matter of minutes, which just wouldn't have been possible before. And so sometimes you have to realize that band-aids will solve it for the short term, but when you're bleeding out, you just have to rip and replace because otherwise you'll do yourself a disservice in the future. I suppose you've got the advantage of having lived through that experience at Bolt. So you've got like the the, the precedent there, but it's got to be difficult for some CMOs to explain the need for this. Like if they're 
their CEO or their CFO is saying like, listen, things are working just fine. Why do we need to completely new website? Why do we need to completely change the ways that we're doing things? Like how can you have those kinds of conversations in order to actually get the buy-in that you need? Yeah, I think it's interesting. I was just attending uh, the Digital Marketing World Forum the other day. And one of the sessions that I attended on the sister track was related to um, penetration testing and security. And so one of the things that hit home, which I think will hit home with any marketer is, a lot of the times you try to talk about um, why we should be developing this new website or why we should be doing these things, but we don't actually tie it to some tangible result. So what he was saying was, when you go to the board, you talk a lot about penetration testing. You can take that approach and you can say, well, if we do penetration testing, we can try to prevent attacks. And when you take that approach, sure, you've queued up the problem and yeah, you've queued up like why it's important, but you haven't really quantified it. What he was saying instead is quantify it in terms of dollar value. If we don't take this penetration testing seriously and one person penetrates XYZ of our systems and steals customer data, now, here's the monetary value that that is going to cost the business. And so when you quantify it in terms of dollar value to the business, you have a much stronger business case than objectively saying this isn't going to scale and it's not going to scale. Here's why. And so for the website, it's like the website is the front door to your house, or you can think of it as the framing of the house. If we don't have the framing of the house right, and it's not in plumb, then we can build the rest of the house. But at some point, that structure is going to be so tilted forward that it'll just fall over. And so if the website is your one impression to make the most positive impression to a prospect possible, and you know that a prospect is worth, let's say $10,000, and you drive 10,000 prospects there a year, and 10% of them drop off because they can't access what they're looking for, or they can't figure out how to navigate to the right page, or they can't do this, now you have a tangible value of this is the dollar value this webseting is costing us because we have these gaps in the tech stack. And so now you talk about, here's the actual fundamental top line impact to the business. And here's why we need to make this decision today instead of delaying it for six, nine, 12 months in the future. And it's basically taking the, the lessons that we learn in marketing, talk to the, the customer or the audience based on the terms that they want to hear and applying it internally, I suppose. Yeah, that's exactly right. If you talk to somebody in finance, what they care about is what's the dollars that this is going to cost me and ultimately what's the revenue that it's going to produce. If you talk to a CEO, he's cared about what's the dollars this is going to cost me, but then ultimately how much is my business going to grow? Because he's gauged based on what's the growth rate of the business, what's the annual recurring revenues of the business, because he's trying to go raise capital to grow to the next stage. And so you have to, in the same light, talk to your customers with their language talk to what the CFO's language is, talk to what the CEO's language cares about, talk to what the board cares about. And so you have to take the same learnings of an audience and apply them upcycle in your organization. And I suppose as well, talking about them in quite clinical terms as well, terms as well kind of reduces the chance that people are going to have an emotional response to something like a founder or a CEO might be quite proud of their, their rickety website that they put together themselves in very early stages. And they might be quite resistant to any change that you want to make to it. So by breaking it down into those very like clinical, clear terms, you remove that kind of emotional aspect to it. Yeah. Although I will say there has to be some emotion involved, right? At the end of the day, marketing's job is to create value in the marketplace. Um, and value doesn't just mean to your customers. It means to your entire internal business function. And so what they have to understand is here's what marketing does and here's the impact we provide. But ultimately, if marketing doesn't exist or if we, if we don't exist, the brand doesn't exist. We don't drive top of a funnel leads into the funnel. We, and so you have to have that emotional connection because otherwise it's zeros, X's and O's, right? It's black and white. And so marketing's job is to add that color and paint in the picture that helps them understand where that brand is heading and how we're going to get there. And sometimes that involves ripping things out and starting again, doesn't it? <laughs> that it does. <laughs> awesome. That it does. So, that, so that's lesson three. Lesson four then, Austin. We're on, we're on to a good yeah. one here. I'm looking forward to the next yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say the next one is um, the role of integrated marketing in a world of channel experts. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of the world today is telling you, a lot of the narrative is saying, you have to be an expert in a specific channel. You have to be an expert in email. You have to be an expert in paid. You have to be an expert in content. You have to be an expert in all of these different channels. And while I think that's right, I think that only applies to startups at a certain scale in their life cycle. When you talk about startups that are growing, startups need people that can 
go across the spectrum. People that can operate in every channel because they don't have the budget to hire those channel experts. Now, as the organization scales, you start to bring in these channel experts because they spend their entire day focused on that thing, right? So instead of somebody spending 5% of their time on social media, you have somebody's entire day spent on social media. So what does that mean? Well, in practice, that means you can put out a ton more output. But at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter when you're growing a startup where that impact comes from. It just means that the brand as a whole is moving in the right direction. And then as the organization scales, each channel has to contribute to that top line revenue goal. And so what does integrated marketing play in that game, right? As you scale, well, integrated marketers to me are kind of like a symphony constructor, symphony conductor. They ensure that every member of the team executes their deliverables on time, in scope, and in harmony with one another. So that regardless of where you interact with the brand, whether it's a digital touch point on the website, a piece of content, a landing page, an email, a social collateral, it all talks, feels, and sounds the same. And so when you look across the board at some of the brands that have done this really well, I would say it's players like ClickUp, which had talked about you know, one app to rule them all, Work Auto, which is automating the work out of everything. Um, and those are people who have transcended their brand and created a cohesive story that no matter where you interact with their properties, just get it. And so I think that's integrated marketing's job. They, they act as that symphony con- conductor to make sure that everybody is talking about it in the same way. And that, and that consistency is so important across the board that like you need to have a consistent brand experience from very, very, from discovery phase all the way through the, the customer lifecycle. Agreed. Yeah. And I think that's one of the most important things you can do as marketers is to tell that story and, and just really make sure that they have a delightful experience at every, every step of the funnel and every step of the way. And when it comes to finding the talent that you need to sort of fill these roles, like how do you go about it? Like in, in a startup, you might not have the luxury of the budget to hire like absolute dynamite marketers. So where, where do you go to find the right people? It's very competitive out there in the, the hiring market at the moment. So where do you look to actually find the right people for these kinds of roles? Yeah, it's interesting. We actually attended the CMO summit um, in San Francisco a few weeks back and one of the sessions was talking about this exact thing. How do you find these generalists? They're in such demand that they're just, they're, they're not, they don't exist. There's no, there's no supply. And so how do you find them? Well, I think the first thing is if you have great people, they also know really great people. And so you can leverage on the network of your employees. They've had a track record of working at multiple different companies before you, and they'll have a track record of working at companies after you. And so they have this network of really great people. And so Ask them to tap in. Do you know any great marketers? Do you know any great BDRs? Do you know any great SDRs? Do you know anybody great at email and lifecycle? Do you know anybody great at all of these different things? And then once you've gotten that initial one connection feedback, now it's having them post out to their LinkedIn networks. Because typically, if they have a close network, they also have a wider mesh network, which would be LinkedIn. And so how do they connect with those people that might not necessarily have worked with them, but still have some connection on, on a different profile. And so having them reach out, one of the things we used to do was these recruiting sessions. And so everybody at the marketing organization would take 30 minutes out of the day, once every couple of weeks, we'd have a role that we were all trying to hire for. And then we'd all just go source for these recruiters. And so we'd all go through our networks on LinkedIn and find out, you know, first connections, here's who I talked to, second connections, here's who I talked to, third connections, here's who I talked to, made a list and then essentially had that recruiter reach out. Hey, saw you're connected with Austin. Notice that you guys had interacted at this place a few years ago. Wanted to know if you're interested in ha- talking about an open role we have. Totally get it if you're happy with your current role, but at least would love to have an introductory conversation to get to know each other. So that's the first step, leveraging your network. The second thing um, is having really great recruiters. I think in the same way that having really great marketers helps blow up your brand, having really great recruiters who have a network of other recruiters is also super impactful. And so recruiters typically know other recruiters who work in different niches. So whether it's somebody who works only in e-commerce or whether it's somebody who works in fintech or nobody, somebody who works in SaaS, these recruiters know other recruiters. And so there's kind of this behind the scenes swap that happens where you introduce me to one candidate, I'll introduce you to another candidate that you're looking for. Um, And so leveraging your recruiters is super important. And then the last thing I think is just having a story that people interact with. I think the craziest thing that I saw at Bolt is when we open up a position for um, an entry-level marketer on our team, You know, typically you'd get 
maybe 100 applications, we received over 750 on day one, which is nuts, right? And so by having a brand that people can look and feel and interact with and think like, hey, these guys are really cool, you drive that inbound funnel. And so a lot of the time, people think marketing is just focused on driving sales, but actually marketing is driving everything. It's helping to drive talent into the funnel. It's helping to drive partnerships into the funnel. It's helping to drive sales into the funnel. It's helping to drive investors into the funnel. We used to spend a lot of our time thinking about how could we reach investors because the more investors that they hear about you, now they're interested too. And so on the same vein of how do you attract really good talent, how do you attract really good investors? You market to them. You make sure that you're top of mind wherever they go on any digital property across the entire internet. And so we had entire audience lists built of just investors so that we would hit them everywhere. We'd have display ads, ABM ads, we'd have social ads, just hitting them everywhere, keeping both top of mind. Awesome. And I suppose as well, it's important to have a really good, solid internal branding and company culture that people would actually want to share with their network and to encourage others to come and work with. Like, are there any steps that you're taking at Arc to try, kind of drive that? Yeah. So um, let's talk about what we did at Bolt and then how we're applying it here. Yeah, so yeah, let's do at it. Bolt, we created this entire framework or book called Conscious Culture. If you want to drop a link to it in the talk, that'd be awesome. But it's conscious.org. And it's essentially a playbook that talks about how you build a culture of high performers and how do you nurture that culture of performers through their entire life cycle. Meaning, how do you have the best onboarding experience possible? Meaning, as they're getting ramped up, how do you have the best ramping up experience? Now they're in the position, how do you have the best experience or, or environment conducive to giving good feedback? And so we wrote this entire framework for how you provide and create a conscious culture. And then we published it for anybody to read. And so anybody that's looking for tips on how you build a conscious culture, conscious.org is your playbook from start to finish. How we're applying some of those lessons at ARC, um, I think it starts with, some of the same things, having a really great onboarding experience. Candidates come into the funnel, they learn everything about the business, they learn all about the different functions, they have meetings with all of the channel experts. So somebody in product, somebody in engineering, somebody in sales, somebody in all of these different places. And so they get a really good understanding of what we do out of the gate. And then as that individual continues to go throughout their life cycle, they have an onboarding buddy that can walk them through the process and answer any questions that they have. And then as they've now matured in the organization, now they get onboarding buddies of their own. So now they're kind of taking the same feedback that they received earlier in their life cycle and now giving it back to the newer generation. And so by creating this flywheel of people coming into the life cycle of fun and the life cycle, and then maturing throughout the organization and then kind of giving back, you create this culture of, of really positive impressions and feedback and and it was just really nice to be a part of people that were really smart and really intelligent and really humble. And I think we've done a really great job of bringing those same traits here to Arc. It's it's almost similar to sort of like the the general customer lifetime cycle, isn't it? Like you want them to, to become advocates, and you do that by treating them well right from the outset. And I suppose it works the same when it comes to your staff. Yeah, exactly. And so we've tried to spend a lot of time um, on making sure that candidate experience is as, as best as it can be. And so Mac. Um, she joined a few months ago and her job is, is as the lead recruiter, head of talent to make sure that they have the most positive experience possible. And I think she's done a fantastic job of, of making sure that we, we demonstrate not only who we are, but also what we're about, some of those values and really communicating why they should want to work at ARC. Awesome. So there, that, that, that lesson out the way, integrated marketers and order to, and how to attract them. So next lesson, which, what are we on now? Is it four or five? I think we're on five. Five, we're on yeah. five. five yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah, this is the final one for you. I think um, the importance of the feedback flywheel and the team of high performers. So high performers are, are hard to find, but now once you find them, how do you make sure that they're really happy? Well, I think the first thing is giving them challenges, right? It's the challenges that make them excited to come to work every day. I think one of the biggest obstacles of hiring high performers is they have to have really hard problems to work on because if they don't have hard problems to work on, they're kind of bored. And so you give them the hard problems, but now how do you actually make sure that they're growing and developing as, as not only a personal um, individual, but also as a professional in the workplace. And so by creating this feedback flywheel of people um, giving feedback to one another, um, you, you start to do that. And so how do you give really good feedback? Well, there's an entire section in the conscious.org playbook. Um, but at a high level, the most important thing is the formula that you give feedback in. So we try to give feedback once a week in one-on-ones. 
Um, and the format that you use is thanks for wish that thanks for the things that they did that went above and beyond what you've expected of them. Wish that's are the things that you wish that they would have done. So maybe it was, you wish that you would have taken the initiative to launch a new marketing campaign. Wish that you would have taken the initiative to speak up during a meeting about a problem that you were facing. Wish that you would have highlighted an obstacle that you're facing sooner in the process so that we could have eliminated the roadblock and moved that um, project forward. And so by leveraging the wish for, thanks that, thanks for wish that formula, um, people are just much more conducive to, uh, to feedback and it just works a lot better. The other couple of pieces of, of tips that I've learned over the years is try to give two to three pieces of positive feedback for every piece of constructive feedback you have. So leveraging more thanks that thanks for than wish that's typically in a two to three ratio works the best. And then the last thing is how do you actually give really good feedback? And so um, again, there's a whole playbook on how you do that. I have a little bit of my own process, which is the X, Y, Z formula. So X is here's what specifically happened. Here's what the situation was. Y is what's the impact. So what was the actual impact on the business? And then Z is, Hey, here are the couple of solutions that I think we can move forward with. So maybe it's, Hey, you know, we didn't launch this ad campaign, kind of disappointed that we didn't get it out the door disappointed because we missed out on the opportunity to test this thing. We had this budget and it didn't go out the door rather than, you know, talking about it and, and just being upset about it, here's two or three solutions that we can do. Maybe we can go launch this new ad campaign with this audience. Let's prioritize. Let's get you some agency help to make sure that this gets across the door board. Maybe let's pull in another teammate to make sure that we get it out the door this week. And so by leveraging that two to three um, ratio of positive feedback to negative feedback, and then lastly, by giving them what's the solution, what's the impact, and then how do we move forward? It just creates this feedback flywheel of people constantly receiving feedback. And so they know what they're doing, how to improve and, and where they're heading in the future. And feedback as well. It's got to be a two way street as well. Like how, yeah. like what kind of steps are you taking there in that respect? Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, right? You think typically feedback flows top down, which is your manager talks to you about feedback, but at Bolt and at Arc, we, we have kind of that top down, but also more importantly, bottom up, right? A lot of the time managers are able to share the feedback but also the direct reports have feedback too. And so when you give them the framework to provide feedback to their manager, and it's expected that they provide feedback to their manager, then you can leverage that feedback at your performance reviews on a quarterly basis, or maybe it's a biannual basis. And so you can start to paint this picture of how that individual tracked over time, not only from the perspective of the individual themselves and their manager, but also from their direct report to the manager. And so you have this kind of nice equilibrium of top down, bottom up. The other thing we used to do was skip level meetings. So you'd have your manager, direct report meets with the manager, but then once a month you'd have a skip level meeting. So direct report would now meet with their manager. And then instead of sharing feedback with them, which maybe they weren't comfortable with, because that is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit abrasive to share with your manager. You can actually share it with their manager. And because they typically have six or seven direct reports, now there's no tie back to that individual. And so you can start to eliminate some of that friction by making sure that feedback flows top down, top down, and then bottom up. And then you've got to action the feedback as well. Like it can't just disappear into a black hole. That That's going to do even worse damage than if you hadn't been taking feedback at all, I suppose. Yeah, it's a very good point. And so that's why it kind of ties to those performance reviews. In performance reviews, it's not only all the things that you've done really well, but it's also what are the things you can work on. And so that's why by having that framework of um, feedback and having that time log of, hey, we talked about this here, you know, you didn't really work on it here, 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 we put it in the performance review. And now it's very clear of whether or not you hit that box or not. And so now you can have the conversation of like, well, why not? How do we fix that, et cetera. And so that's where if you have that track record of continuously posting feedback publicly, by the way, right, so that other people can see it. Now you have a framework conducive to actually growing professionally because you're held accountable, right? You can't just be the person that takes the feedback and ignores it because everybody knows you're supposed to be working on it. And if you're not working on it, well, now there's accountability. And, and when it comes to sort of the, the bottom up feedback as well, like having evidence that a company is taking steps to respond to feedback, yeah. it's going to, people are going to stick around longer with that company as well because they feel like they have a lot more influence a lot more onus over what happens in that company and they're, they're part of the story part of the narrative part of the development of the company in a bigger way than just being some office drones plugging away yeah yeah i think the 
maybe the single biggest contributor that I would think of attrition in an organization is feeling like you don't have a say in what they're doing. And so by giving them a framework and a platform to share that feedback, not only with their managers, but the, their manager's manager, and then their manager's manager's manager, right? Now you can start to give feedback and make sure everybody has a say so that the loudest voices in the room don't always win, which I think sometimes I find myself being that loudest voice in the room. And so I have to take a step back and say, maybe my perspective isn't right. Maybe I thought about the problem in this way, but maybe somebody else has a, has a different perspective. So that's where I've tried to take a, a step back and self-reflect into giving other people the chance to share what they have to say before I even say anything. Yeah, that's got to be a very difficult trait to to learn as a leader because you like you are sort of expected to be sort of like the big voice in the room to be like the the inspirational side of things. Like, how have you been like reading anything in particular to kind of learn these uh, these processes as a leader, or is it just something that you've been naturally trying to develop yourself? I think it's both. Um, I think when you have and you're surrounded by really great people, I think you naturally pick some of those things up. I think. The other thing is I've just tried to do a lot of self-reflection and how I can be a better leader and taking that feedback really to heart. I think the other thing is it related to like, you're surrounded by really great people. I forget what it is, but you're, you're the sum or the average of the five people you surround yourself most with. So I try to surround myself with people that are um, not only doing the best of their ability in whatever you know space that they're playing in, but they're also like just really good people. And so I think when you're surrounded by people who, who are just really great operators, but also really great people, I think it makes a big difference on your professional career. I would say one of the biggest impacts I've had personally was my um, fiance, Anna. She, she's, uh, she was a social worker, now she's in human resources. Um, but one of the th- biggest things she taught me was, it's not about what you say or like how you say it, right? A lot of people think like it's the intention that matters. But really what matters is the impact, right? Like you could say something and your attention was the best, but ultimately, like if it had a negative impact on that person, their perspective isn't wrong. Everybody's perspective is right. And so when you take a step back and you're like, hey, I I said it in this way, here's the way that I meant it, but here's the actual impact that it had. And you think about it from their perspective and their perspective is not wrong. I think that's where you start to have those conversations of like, how can I be a better leader? How can I take their input? How can I take their input and put it to work? How can I be a better leader and make sure that, you know, as, as a marketing leader, I'm representing myself and the company in a positive light. And so when you do that, um, I think it just creates a much more conducive environment to having these personal connections. Cause at the end of the day, like you're working with people, right? And so you want to be connected with people. And so when you're giving the feedback and you're receiving the feedback and you're trying to improve yourselves, I think people appreciate that. And I think they, they appreciate that you're taking the steps to improve yourself. And so one of the, one of the um, greatest quotes that I've come to know by is that we, we try to be the senior, the seniors that we needed as juniors. And so <laughs> by that, I mean, you know, and you, as you're earlier in your career, you never know what's going to impact your trajectory. You have no idea. But what you can say is there's people who have fundamentally uh, changed your trajectory because they were a part of your life. And so some of those people would be a professor I had at Whitewater. His name's Dave G. He put me through this entire entrepreneurship program. He gave me the courage to take a chance and go out West. Um, another one is um, my dad. I think he did a great job of, of just trying to make sure that I had this psychological safety in order to take risks and go do these you know, crazy things. I think another one is my mom. She tried to push me to go do my best no matter what it was. And so you just have these people in your life that you just never know how to adjust their trajectory. And so by giving you the opportunity to go and do that and by giving it back to the people that are now in your same shoes, I think that's what means the most to me. Awesome. That was lovely. Thank you very much for sharing that. That's some really great advice, not just in terms of being a CMO or being a marketing leader, but being like operating in business today, being a great person. So thank you very much for sharing that, Austin. Um, So yeah, lesson five, create a culture that supports and challenges people to the best of their ability. Um, I think that's a great lesson to take away. Um, Five great lessons there, Austin. Um, Before we wrap things up, is there any other big piece of advice that you want to share in terms of how you're looking to grow Arc and how other people can sort of replicate the success that you've seen previously? Yeah, I mean, as a kid that grew up in Wisconsin, I, I never thought that I'd have the opportunity to move out here and be a part of one of these unicorns, right? I think you hear these stories of like, oh, this startup turned into a unicorn. Like, 
back in the day it was Uber and then it was Lyft and then it was, you know, Bird. And so you like hear these stories of like all these crazy people who have done all these crazy things, raised all this crazy money. But you realize they're just people, right? They're people that took a risk. And so as marketers, I think a lot of the time we think, hey, we don't really have the opportunity to make such a large impact. But what I would challenge that is like, you have the opportunity to do anything you want. You have the opportunity to fundamentally change the trajectory of, of the company. And I think when you have the opportunity to do that, and when you have the opportunity to, to show you know, the impact you can have, just make the leap, right? Take the risk. Maybe you you fail, but pick yourself up and learn from it and grow again. And I think for me, what I've always tried to do in my career, whether it was some of the startups I had earlier in my career or some of the corporations that I joined later in my career, or then joining Bolt and joining Arc is you always have to be making an impact. And so you're either earning or you're learning. And ideally you're doing both, but if you're doing neither, then it's time for you to move on. And so I think at some point you have to have a difficult conversation of, like I can make the risks and I can make the jumps and I can have this large impact, but ultimately, like if I'm not happy as a person, it's time for me to move on. And so I think a lot of the time you feel stuck in your career because you feel like, Hey, I'm not making an impact. Hey, I'm not doing these things, but just realize that like there are opportunities out there for you to find it. And you just have to be looking, right? If you don't take a swing at bat, you can't hit a home run. And so just get out there and look and, and keep doing you right. Just be authentic in you and your story and own it. And when you make a mistake, own up to it and just say, I messed up, but it's okay. Here's what I learned. And if you can do that, I think that's what leaders are looking for today. Some excellent words of wisdom there, Austin. Thank you very much. And thank you very much for joining me today. It's been a great conversation, some really great lessons to take away, um, um, which will apply for not just CMOs and startups, I think, but CMOs across the board. There's a lot to be taken away from this conversation. So thank you very much for, for sharing them today. Um, yeah, thank you very much for having me, Will. I appreciate you taking the time and sorry for tearing up there at the end. Oh no, it's all good, Austin. I was tearing up myself. It was a, it was a lovely moment. <laughs> a lovely moment. Um, I'm sure our audience appreciate it as well. Um, we'll be back soon with some more CMO combos. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Will. I hope you have a great day. Like what you heard from this CMO combo? Make sure you hit that subscribe button and leave a rating so the whole world knows how great it was. 